0: So here we are today picking up our study here in the Gospel of Mark and coming now to the final uh, portion of this ninth chapter here. Uh, Our focus today is going to be on verses 42 through 50, but we needed to read the larger portion of the passage to Get the context in order to understand why Jesus suddenly shifted to a warning about the realities of hell. This is really um, it's a little bit difficult to follow the 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 train of thought, but that's that's what we want to do. Now, there's three different places in the New Testament where similar language is used uh, speaking on the topic of hell. And, uh, as a matter of fact, it, it, would have been, it would have been easy to kind of just, um, give a message on that subject today, even though that's not a real popular subject. Uh, it would have been easy to give a message on that, the subject of hell and judgment. But the important thing for us is we have to understand what the scripture says in its context. And so there's a context here. There's uh, this is some the, this all that we're reading here. It it all goes together. It all happened in relation to the um, the dispute that the disciples were having. They were having this dispute. You remember uh, we read it here about who would be the greatest in the kingdom. And so everything that that follows that. Record of that dispute. It, it's all connected together, and so Jesus. It's just in a sense you look at it and think, well, "What does this mean? How does this uh, sudden turn toward this severe warning about judgment? How does that fit into the picture?" Because Jesus is talking to his disciples. He's talking to those men that he is. Uh, grooming and equipping and preparing to go out into the world and to be his representatives, and so what? It, what do they have to do with the the, the dangers of hell? Uh, because after all, you know they're his. They're his guys. But as we look closely, what we're going to see is that Jesus is speaking to them, but he's speaking with future generations of leadership in mind. Now, Jesus knows there's going to be a church. He's establishing a church. He knows that there are going to be people who are going to lead uh, that church into the future. And what Jesus wants to establish here is what the heart of church leaders is to be. That's really what, what the whole passage is about. And so the, um, the teaching on true greatness, because that's really the issue, right? They're having a dispute about who's the greatest. So the teaching on true greatness is completely counterintuitive to human reasoning on the matter, And Jesus wants these men who he's going to appoint to lead, he wants them to understand what true greatness is. True greatness is being a servant. True greatness is not seeking to lord over people, but to uh, come and serve people. And so because the apostles were no exception, and, and they themselves were clueless So Jesus undertakes to instruct them on what and who really mattered before God. So that's what he's doing here. Now, from the point of the dispute, everything that we read after that, the event itself and the things that followed and and the examples in all of this, uh, what's happening is... uh, Jesus is correcting them on their wrong idea about greatness, and he's illustrating the point of who are important to God and who are never to be despised, shunned, overlooked, or neglected uh, by them as God's servants. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen, never I'll summarize what, what he's really getting at here. Never, ever despise the little people that I came to save. So he is instilling this in the first leaders of the church so that the successive generations of leaders would understand the priority of Jesus. Because we see already they're, they're, they're thinking wrongly. So their their model is, all right, power. We're we're gonna have power. We're with Jesus and I'm gonna be the greatest. No, I'm gonna be the greatest. Well, I'm gonna sit on his right hand. No, I'm gonna sit on his right hand. And so they're they're modeling the world's idea of power. They're also modeling the ideas of the religious elite of the day because the religious elite of the day made up of the Sadducees, the priestly uh, group and the Pharisees. Uh, they, they lorded over the people. They they had no real care or concern for the the average person. As a matter of fact, there's one point where uh, John records this for us, where where somebody says about Jesus how, you know the the report back was this man speaks like no one's ever spoke, and they said, have any of the Pharisees believed in him? But this common people, this this rabble, uh, these people who don't know anything, they're the only ones that are following him. You see, that was their attitude. Their attitude was to look down on the common people. And that's the very attitude that Jesus is not going to tolerate. And that's why he gives such a severe warning here. It's a very severe warning that those who take that attitude toward his people, they... Unless that's repented of, they will end up in hell. That's what he's saying. He's giving like a stern warning for all future church leaders to take very seriously his love for all the people. And, And that's really what the context of the passage is communicating. And of course, as we go through the rest of the New Testament, we see that that was a problem that began even in apostolic times, that there were false teachers that rose up that cared nothing for the people, but sought to uh, gain power over them so they might exploit them. And it started in the apostolic era. The apostles fought that throughout their entire ministries, but it went on and on and on in the history of the church right down to this very day. And so that's, that's the context for the statement that Jesus is making here. It's not just a random Uh, let me change the subject and talk about hell. It is, let me warn you about where those who despise those that I love, let me warn you about where they end up. That is essentially what Jesus is saying. So, the little ones, that's who Jesus is concerned for here. Now, I I want you to notice in in the verses that we read... You have uh four different references to the little ones. The first is the little children. First of all, Jesus uses a child as an example, an actual child. Then you have uh another reference to the, the seeming, you know, little ones or the little people, and that would be in someone who does not follow us. So John's word somebody who doesn't follow us was casting out demons in your name and we forbid him. So it's a dismissal of the person. He doesn't follow us. Then Jesus speaks of whoever gives a cup of water in my name. And then he says, finally, in verse 42, the little ones who believe in me. Now, in in every one of those references, Jesus is talking about the same people. He's talking about Again, the little people, the common people. He's talking about, first of all, little children. Well, uh, little children in the minds of many were not of uh, that much importance. I mean, you know, after all, these are just children. It's like uh, out, out of uh, children should be uh, seen and not heard and, and all of that sort of thing. Just dismissive of the little children. And then someone who doesn't follow us. Well, this person's not one of us, so we don't need to have any real um, care or concern for that person. And then whoever gives a cup of water in my name. Well, this is a person, a cup of water. What is that? I mean, that's nothing. This is a person who is, is not of much worth. And then finally, when Jesus uses the term, the little ones who believe in me, the words mean those who are deemed insignificant. It doesn't mean little, like little children. He's already spoken of little children. But what he's referring to here now are those who are deemed insignificant or of no value. And in a parallel passage in Matthew 18, that is clarified because Jesus says there, he says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones for the son of man has come to save that which was lost. In other words, what Jesus is saying, do not consider anybody as unsavable or anybody as unworthy of salvation because of your evaluation of them. So that's what Jesus is talking about here. So Jesus here is teaching them that those that they might be tempted to think of as unimportant, insignificant, or undesirable are the very ones he loves and the very ones his kingdom will be made up of and the ones he will ultimately avenge. That's what he's saying. That he will be the avenger of of those little ones that are despised by those who look down upon them and see themselves as uh, more important. And so Jesus is saying, in my kingdom and among my leaders, that mentality will not be tolerated. That mentality will be a judgment. And anyone with that mentality, Jesus is so severe. He says, it would be better for that person if a millstone were tied around their neck and they were cast into the depth of the sea. So, if if a person in the position of spiritual leadership, if that person stumbles, meaning if that person turns people away from Christ because of a condescending, um, self righteous "you're not worthy, God doesn't care about you or love you," Jesus said, that person is um, in danger of judgment. And he, of course, allows for repentance because he says, if your hand offend you, cut it off. If your feet, cut them off. If your eye, pluck it out. Um, it's, in other words, get right with God. Change that attitude. Now, I mentioned here uh, those who really matter to God. That's what, that's what Jesus is teaching them. So here's the question. Who really matters to God? Well, On the one hand, of course, the answer is obvious. Everybody matters to God, right? Because um, Jesus died for the whole world. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. So we can confidently say that everybody matters to God. And it doesn't matter uh, if you're rich and famous or if you're poor and obscure. It doesn't matter. None of those things really matter in one sense because... God loves everyone and he cares about everyone, but we do have to recognize that God does have a soft spot for the underdog. And that is revealed all throughout scripture. Uh, He cares about widows. He cares about orphans. He cares about refugees. He cares about the poor. He cares about the oppressed and they have a, a special place in his heart. You see, the truth of the matter is, Jesus is, he's the real champion of the poor. He's the real champion of, of the common uh, people. And we can never forget that. You see, there's no one insignificant to Jesus. And, and as we see Jesus in his ministry, you know, if you think about the ministry of Jesus I was thinking about this in preparation uh, to teach us. I was thinking about how, you know, Jesus basically just ignored the 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 high and powerful uh, elite of the day. He he spent his time with the people that no one wanted to spend their time with. That's, that's who he came and he ministered to. He ministered to just, you know, the everyday average person whose life was broken and who was struggling with, you know, maybe economically or maybe physically through illness, or maybe they had been ostracized because, uh, socially because of their uh, behavior or whatever. Those are the people that Jesus came and ministered to. And so even though God, of course, uh, loves everyone and everyone matters to him, uh, there is that soft spot, uh, soft spot in the heart of the Lord. And there is also the reminder in scripture that God resists the proud. See, that's the issue here. It's the issue of a, of a prideful heart that sees oneself as superior to others and, and looks down on any group of people And uh, that's the proud. And God resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And this is what we see in Jesus' dealing with people. Remember, in in that one uh, story, Jesus spoke of... um, a camel going through the eye of a needle. When a rich man came to Jesus and said, uh, what must I do to have eternal life? And Jesus you know, laid things out for him. And that person walked away because they had great wealth. Uh, the disciples were amazed. And Jesus said to them, he said, it is easier for the uh, camel to go through the eye of a needle than for those who have riches to enter the kingdom. He's not saying rich people can't be saved. He's not saying he doesn't love rich people or care for rich people. The problem is on the part of the rich. They trust in their riches. They see their riches as something that makes them above and better than others. And of course, obviously acceptable to God. I mean, I'm not like these other people. Look at me, I've succeeded in life. I've done well. Uh, I, I've, 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 uh, made a name for myself. That's the kind of attitude that Jesus is talking about. And Jesus himself said in another place, he said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to the little ones. Yes, Father, for this is what you were pleased to do. See, that's the heart of Jesus said, father, this was wise that you did this, the wise and the learned. again, he's talking about people who are wise in their own eyes. They're learned. They're above all of this. They're, they're not like the rabble. They're not like just, you know, these, these common people down here that don't know anything. That's Jesus said, father, you hid these things from them. And you revealed these things to the little ones And Paul, the apostle, uh, would pick up on this same idea and writing to the Corinthians, he would say, for you see your calling that not many wise, according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. Now, when Paul says God has chosen the foolish things of the world, he's talking about the perspective of the world toward the people that God has chosen. The, the world looks on and says, oh, the, those, those people are foolish. I mean, who would be interested in those people? Who cares about them? They're not part of the elite. They're not part of the, the, those who are sophisticated and uh, looked up to and respected. In their minds, they're foolish. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things to put to shame the things that are mighty and the base things of the world and the things which are despised. God has chosen and the things which are not to bring to nothing the things that are. So this is the way God has worked historically. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And so once again, in the context, the passage about hell here, beginning in verse 42 and going through verse 48 is a warning to those who would lead the church that they were to never despise the little people. They were to never look down on any group of people as unsavable or undesirable or anything like that. Now, included in this, of course, would be that they would never despise, oppress, exploit, abuse, neglect, or reject the ones that Jesus so deeply loves. And those who have done that are obviously not the true servants of Christ. And Jesus is warning, they will have their place in hell. Again, it's a severe warning against the false leaders, but he holds out the hope of repentance. Now, tragically, see, this is a lesson that was not taken to heart. Now, of course, in the earliest days of the church, yes, the the apostles finally understood this. This was a, um, Jesus was teaching them this as, as they were going along because they just like everybody else were thinking in terms of power over people, but Jesus breaks them of that. And of course, we see their subsequent lives and ministries that they, they learned the lesson. But unfortunately, uh, not everyone learned that lesson. And after the, the death of the apostles, and as the church went on historically, uh, you, you had many, many people in many different eras and seasons in the church where this whole understanding was just completely uh, dismissed. And the church... Uh, bought into the power structures and sought to uh, basically rule and and have power and lord it over people in the same way that the, the kings of the earth did in the opposite way of what Jesus said things were to be done. And so from the institutionalizing of the church where the best seats in the house were reserved for the wealthiest, most powerful in society. That happened. Uh, To the church's lust for worldly power that put the church in bed with the state, uh, to even subduing the worldly powers to the point that the kings bowed before the leaders uh, of the church lest the leaders lose the church's approval. Did you know that at a time in history the church in Europe specifically had more power than the monarchs. The monarchs were subject to the authority of the church because the church held over them the threat of hell. So if you cross us, if you don't acknowledge us, if you don't recognize our power, then we will condemn you. And back in those days, nobody really had a a Bible to Uh, The church kind of took the Bible out of the hands of the common people, and so uh, everybody was just subjected to that. So the history of the church is full of these kinds of things, and we today cannot be ignorant of this reality. You know, it, there's an interesting phenomena that's happening in the culture today. We see Christians being persecuted. We've seen that in the Middle East. Uh, we've seen that most recently. We saw that in the bombings in Sri Lanka last week. And, and, and so there's, there's talk. And uh, oftentimes in the, the media in general, as we, as we saw, there, there's a reluctance to even admit that Christians are the target. So there's a reference to Easter worshipers, no use of the word Christian. And and even people in the the secular media are noticing this trend and this tendency. And there's a reluctance and and really, in many cases, a refusal to even consider that Christianity is, is being oppressed. And there's a reason for that. The reason for that is in the secular mind, the church has been seen as an oppressor. So the church has oppressed people. The church has been an oppressor. So, And, and in the minds of many people, the church is still an oppressor. And so they do not want to look at the church being oppressed. They want to, to keep the narrative going that the church is an oppressor. Now, listen, that's, of course, wrong but the church has given them a basis for that. And the church has done that by failing to take to heart what Jesus taught here, because the church has sought power. The church has oppressed people That is a historical reality that we cannot escape. And rather than denying it, we ought to just admit that that's been the case and remind people that, well, that is true. That happened in church history. But guess what? Jesus warned about it. (laughs) Jesus said it was going to happen. And Jesus never did it. And his original followers didn't do it. But yes, it has happened in history. It doesn't help to deny it because we are denying reality. So, but, but just these, these different examples that we could go through here, just thinking about these different things. So the time when the church had dominion over the, over the civil authorities um, in Europe, but then you see it to uh, the joint venture of the church with the worldly powers during the colonial period in oppressing and exploiting uh, natives, native peoples. I mean, you read the history of, of what happened in South America and Central America, Mexico, here in North America. I mean, the, those, that, that was oftentimes the church working together with the state and oppressing and, and exploiting and, and scandalizing in the end, uh, stumbling people rather than leading people uh, to Christ. And so you can see it there. You can see it in the church's support of and complicity in the slave trade. You could see it in more recently, the church's support of Hitler. Did you know that a, a large um, number of church leaders in the German church supported Hitler? And it was a minority that resisted him and they were persecuted by the the church for their resistance. And so we have that example there to the church's ongoing disregard for the plight of the immigrant, the marginalized, the racially oppressed, and so forth. Now, when I say the church, understand what I'm referring to here. When I say the church, it's what the world sees and understands to be the church. Now we would say, Oh no, no, that's not the church. And the world says, well, why not? (laughs) They say they're the church. They claim to be the church. Their buildings say we are a church. Their whole hierarchy says we are a church, but we say, but no, they're, they're not really the church. But you see the world can't make that distinction. And so we have to be we we just have to be different. We can't, in any way, uh, join in with that complicity. We we as individual believers and we congregationally we have to not get entangled in that type of stuff. And you see, today in our current cultural context. You know, the church that is seen by the, um, the, the secular world as, as doing once again, this, this kind of oppressive type of a thing, uh, you, you hear this in the media all the time. Uh, the new target is evangelicalism and now evangelicalism historically is, uh, have been the people that have believed in the Bible. And taking it seriously. And the evangel is the proclamation of the gospel. But what's happened over time is that among the evangelical church, you have a similar kind of thing that's happened over and over again, where, where the church gets blended with secular power. And the church embraces secular power. And the church gets more invested in uh, national kinds of concerns and things rather than in the gospel concern. And that's a real thing that we have to uh, be aware of and watch out for. But, but the good news is this. There has always been, all throughout the history of the church, there have always been those who understood, believed, and followed what Jesus taught here. The apostles and the early church leaders got it. And thank God, many others throughout history did get it. But let me give you some examples so William Carey, William Carey was kind of the first uh, European missionary to uh, India. But when William Carey had a burden and a passion to take the gospel to India, and Africa was on his heart as well, um, when he approached his church and the powers that existed in the church in those days to share his vision about getting the gospel to them. You know what they said? They said, those people are heathen, and there's no sense in taking the gospel to them. We don't need to be concerned with that. So the attitude of the church leadership in the days of William Carey is exactly the attitude that Jesus said never to have. See, for them, the heathen were unsavable. They're unredeemable. They're worthless. Why would you waste your life or time or money to go take the gospel to those people? That was the attitude in those days. Wilberforce. Wilberforce is the one who, uh, of course, fought against the slave trade in Britain. You know, some of the fiercest, fiercest opponents of William Wilberforce uh, were the Anglican leaders of the day. And of course, there were people within the the church that were with Wilberforce and fighting against those things. But some of his fiercest opposition came from the established church. So this is another example. this This has happened so many times over. Hudson Taylor. Hudson Taylor, the great pioneer missionary to inland China, when Hudson Taylor went to China, Hudson Taylor loved China. From the time he was a boy, he loved China. He loved all things Chinese. And when he went to take the gospel to the Chinese, he believed that the, the gospel could penetrate the Chinese in their cultural context. And so he went there respecting Chinese culture. He went there fully uh, desiring to adapt to Chinese culture. And he did. He went and he dressed like a Chinaman. And he took on Chinese culture. And you know what the mission organization tried to do? They tried to force him out of the land. Because he wasn't there to just bring the gospel to the Chinese, he was there to bring European civilization to the heathen. That was their thinking. And that's why they so fiercely opposed Hudson Taylor. But thank God for Hudson Taylor. That he stood against that that he understood the real issue was the gospel, and so another more recent example would be Diedrich Bonhoeffer Diedrich Bonhoeffer was one of the voices that stood against the state church uh, back in the time of the Third Reich. He ultimately paid the martyr 's price for that, but he stood against the um, the established church, and so it was it was uh, again these men these these believers um they refused to compromise the gospel for power they got it and thank god that people still get it today but it's uh it's a very um it's a very fine line and those who stood against and stand against oppression exploitation racism today, they get it. And you know, it's not popular even today. And sometimes even in the church, there will be criticism of those who stand for the marginalized. But let's never forget that the severe warning here about the fire that has never quenched came to those who would lead the church, because Jesus said, Do not despise the little ones. Jesus, as I said, is the champion of the little people, and so the outcast, the poor, the immigrant. The mentally and physically disabled, the sexually broken, the stranger, the brother or sister who's uh, a a different color or speaks a different language. See, these are all the people that will oftentimes be, you know, the term marginalized means, you know, pushed off to the side. No, we don't have a place for them. We don't care for them. I'll never forget a friend of mine. A very dear friend told me when he was a young man um, and he came from an ethnic background and he was kind of moving in the direction of, of trying to discover who God was. And he told me that he went into a church and he was met at the door with these words, There's no place for your kind here. And he was turned away. And man, if there is ever an example of the very thing Jesus said never to do, that's it right there. Whoever stumbles one of these seemingly insignificant ones who believe in me, better than a millstone were hung around their neck. Do you know how many times that has been repeated over and over again in history? You know sometimes it happens in a racial context. Well no, you're not welcome here you're you know the, your, your kind meet down there you you go down the road there. that happens in churches that that is the exact antithesis of what Jesus was about. and so we cannot lose sight of this now. Jesus goes on, and I'm going to finish it up in the context here. He goes on after the severe warning of judgment upon those who despise the little ones. He says, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Salt is good, but if the salt loses its flavor, how will you season it? Have salt in yourselves and have peace with one another. Now, honestly, many, many, if not most commentators have no idea what this means. And it's hard to even kind of figure out what is Jesus talking about here? But I'm going to give it a shot. Here's what I think he's talking about. He says, for everyone will be seasoned with fire and every sacrifice will be seasoned with salt. Fire and salt, both of them are purifying agents. That's what they do. And so Jesus is basically saying to them that this attitude, I am going to purge this out of you. I am going to refine you. I I am going to purify you so that you'll never again say, well, we told this person you're not part of us. Or, you know, Oh, somebody with a cup of water, what is that? that you know, obviously that person's insignificant. Or, or the, these little people. So Jesus is saying, I'm gonna purge that. That's what fire and that's what salt does. But then he says, salt is good, but if it loses its flavor, how will you season it? And, and you see, this is the thing. This is what happened. The church is salt the church is to preserve the, the the world from this kind of corruption. But if the church buys into the world's view, and listen, we, we often think of the church buying into the world's view just in the kinds of things like maybe embracing some current view of sexuality, or, or maybe the church buying into, um, you know, something to do with uh some, something like um you know compromising in in various moral areas and things like that um and and yes all of that's true but it but it's bigger than that it's more than that and the church loses its intended saltiness when it it joins hands with earthly power. When the church seeks the approval of the powers that be or goes along uh, just hand in hand with the agenda of the powers that be, the church has then lost its flavor and it becomes good for nothing. You see, the church is to be countercultural. And the church is to be countercultural in every way. The church literally should offend everybody. <laughs> it should offend everybody. It, there, it, we are a, uh, an equal opportunity offender. That's who the church is to be. In other words, when the church al- is lined up perfectly with the agenda of the powers that be, regardless of what the particulars are, then the church is compromised. So I'll make it real simple. We have the division. We all understand it, right? There's the division of the right and the left. And if the church is fully aligned with either right or left, the church is compromised. See, the church is to be a different thing. And if it's not a different thing, then its purpose is defeated. And that's what Jesus is saying. If the salt loses its flavor. You see, the truth of the matter is Jesus loves everybody. But he has a big, big heart for the marginalized. He has a big, big heart for those who are suffering, for those who are poor, for those who have been oppressed, For those kinds of things and those kinds of people, the heart of Jesus is for them. And so we have to be careful that we maintain the heart of Jesus and not get sucked up into a perspective that maybe seems right, but it's not the heart of Jesus. Remember, in all of these examples that we're giving here, What's happening is there's a dismissal of certain categories of people. That's what's going on. And Jesus says, don't do it. Don't ever do it. If you're gonna adopt this, you might as well get a millstone and hang it around your neck and go jump in the sea because that's the end of those who adopt that mentality because I love people. And the only way the gospel is going to, Spread the only way uh, the church is going to progress, and the only way that we can in some way push back on the um, faulty history of the church is not to repeat the same mistakes that have been made over and over again in history and so in our cultural moment we have uh, we have areas that we ourselves have to understand. God's heart on these matters and not be sucked into the, the human perspective regardless of what side we're taking our cues from. What does what scripture say? What is the heart of Jesus? And we know here, and I'll just close with this uh, one reminder Remember the words of Jesus to the religious elite of the day. The tax collectors, the prostitutes, the drunkards, the despised enter the kingdom before you. See, whenever there was that moment in history, wherever it happened first and wherever it's been repeated over and over again, where the church looked down on certain people in society and said, you're unsavable, you're unredeemable, you're unwelcome, you're any of those things, that's when the church entered the ranks of the religious elite that Jesus resisted. That's, That's when that happens. And let's not... Um, repeat that Um, and, and of course it's it's a collective thing but it's also a personal thing so we in our own personal lives we have to ask the lord to search our hearts lord is there are there people that i despise you came to seek and save the lost. But are there people that I despise? Are there people that I don't wanna uh, have associations with? Are there people that I don't want in the church that I go to? You know, that's a real thing. And if we find that in our hearts, then Jesus said, repent. You know, cut off your hand, pluck, <laughs> pluck out your eye. I mean, those are extreme things. Jesus doesn't intend anybody to do that. That's hyperbole. But what he's trying to show us is how serious a matter this is. And so if we find our hearts in any way set against the little ones that Jesus loves, that's when we need to make a big change. And by God's grace, we can do that. So Lord, we thank you that you gave instruction you gave clear instruction about this and and lord we acknowledge that um, this instruction has not been heeded quite often throughout history and and probably even in our own lives we would have to say that there have been times when we have been guilty of despising the little ones and so lord wherever that's been true would you forgive us today And Lord, may we have your heart. Lord, may we not be um, like the salt that's lost its flavor. It becomes good for nothing. But Lord, may we be that countercultural influence. Loving the, the things and the people that you love. And shunning those things, Lord, those alignments with power. And and those things where we would position ourselves in some way uh, over others. Lord, help us. God, help us. Help your church today. Help your church in in this um, nation. Lord, to be aligned with you and your heart in these matters, we pray. And Lord, we know in the end that um, love is what you've called us to. Lord, you deeply love the little ones. And Lord, may we do so. And Lord, we are the little ones ourselves. And Lord, we never want to see ourselves as above somebody else. And if we have, forgive us. Thank you for your mercy and grace. And Lord, we pray that you'd fill up our church, your church, churches all over with the little ones. Lord, draw them in, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.